This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When it comes to heartwarming stories, few subjects are better than a feel-good tale of adoption. Whether it's in real life or a Hollywood tearjerker, there's nothing better than a moving story of someone finding their forever family. On the silver screen, there's plenty of adoption narratives where art imitates life. In New York City during the Great Depression, Little Orphan Annie was famously taken in by Daddy Warbucks. On Prince Edward Island, Anne Shirley found a home at Green Gables with her guardians Marilla and Matthew. Nobody ever did want me. I might have known this was all too beautiful to be true. This is just the most tragical thing that has ever happened to me. And years earlier, across the pond, Charles Dickens had published the classic stories of Oliver Twist and David Copperfield. Please, sir, I want some more. Others took a different approach on adoption, like in the popular book Matilda, where the main character was later adopted by her kind-hearted teacher, Miss Honey. I wanted to stay with Miss Honey. Miss Honey doesn't want you. Why would she want some snotty, disobedient kid? Because she's a spectacularly wonderful child and I love her. Adopt me, Miss Honey. You can adopt me. While those are all fictional, there are plenty of inspiring stories based on real events as well. The Blind Side, which was turned into a movie in 2009, starring Sandra Bullock, tells the story of disadvantaged teen Michael Orr, who went on to play in the NFL. Michael's walking down the road. My dad immediately sees him and says that's the new student at the school. And she says, well, why does he have on shorts and a t-shirt when it's 30 degrees outside? I guess that's the mother instinct. I'll probably figure that out later on in life. So she tells my dad, turn the car around. My dad whips the car around, doesn't even ask, rolls down the window. And that is how Michael came to be a part of the Tui family. Several months later, through a lot of sequence of events, but that's how it all began. Let me tell you about Michael Moore. The touching film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. On the other side, there are adoption stories from hell. Like in the film Mommy Dearest, told from the perspective of Joan Crawford's adopted daughter, Christina. I wanna know. Why did you adopt me? Maybe I did it for a little extra publicity. Why can't you give me the respect that I'm entitled to? The movie is based on the 1978 autobiography by Christina Crawford and is a disturbing example of what can happen when adoption goes wrong. But what happens when this kind of nightmare adoption narrative occurs on a larger, almost industrial scale? For many families around the world, 
adoption has been a heartbreaking last resort. However, as undesirable as it might be, it has provided an option when families had no other choice. Perhaps they couldn't afford another mouth to feed, or for women who were unable to access contraception. Maybe it was a single mother who was cast out by their loved ones and their community. Whatever the reason, where there's a desperate person in need, there's always people ready to take advantage. Over the years, individuals manipulating the adoption process into a lucrative criminal enterprise has not been uncommon. Behind the facade of kindness and goodwill, there are those whose motivations are far more sinister than anyone would like to imagine. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. On July 18, 1891, George and Beulah Tan welcomed their first child, Georgia. The couple lived in the tiny town of Hickory, Mississippi, where George held the honorable role of judge and Beulah was a schoolteacher. A few years after their daughter's birth, her younger brother arrived. George had high ambitions for his oldest child. He decided Georgia would be a professional musician one day gracing the stage of such prestigious venues as Carnegie Hall in New York City, which, coincidentally, opened the same year she was born. In order to realize her father's dream of being a renowned concert pianist, she began taking lessons at age five. She took her studies seriously and practiced diligently. But something else that happened during George's childhood would go on to shape the direction of her life and her sense of purpose. From the time she was very young, she remembered her father constantly bringing disadvantaged children back to the family's home. Her father's deep involvement with their community made a lasting impression. Following in his footsteps, Georgia knew that she would make child welfare her life's work. After graduating in 1913 with a degree in music, Georgia continued her studies, attending Columbia University in New York City. Instead of pursuing music, however, this time she turned her focus to courses in social work. She went on to study law under the close supervision of her father, the judge. But as proud as he was of his daughter eventually passing the Mississippi bar exam, he put his foot down when it came to Georgia becoming a practicing lawyer. In the early 20th century, the U.S. suffrage movement was making great strides when it came to equality for women. But law remained one career path where women were few and far between. Despite her best efforts, Georgia's attempts to practice law were blocked at every turn. She had no interest in doing what was typical of most women at the time, by getting married and starting a family. Deciding that a career in the performing arts was not for her, she instead chose the next obvious path and followed her education in social work. After a short time in Texas, she returned to her home state of Mississippi, where she began working within child welfare. Landing a job at the Mississippi Children's Home Society, 
Georgia had a clear vision for giving neglected children a life full of opportunities they would not have had otherwise. She would make it her mission to find the best homes for the most vulnerable and underprivileged. But despite the success Georgia Tan was making in her new career, it may surprise you to learn the practice of adoption itself was not all that common at the time. So, she devised an interesting and effective tactic when it came to promoting adoption. Georgia Tan would make it fashionable. As it was something only the privileged were in a position to provide anyway, it created an air of exclusivity to the adoption process. The business model was simple. Place children from impoverished backgrounds with wealthy couples. In what was essentially a rebranding, George's advocacy helped shift public perception of what it meant to adopt neglected children. It wasn't long before taking in abandoned kids became somewhat of a status symbol within the ranks of high society. No longer was it viewed as the shameful secret it once was. Georgia became her best advertisement, adopting a baby girl herself in 1922. She named her June. While still working at the Children's Home Society, Georgia became close with a colleague named Anne Atwood. But that friendship was tested when Georgia was fired in 1924. Apparently, her employer had grown concerned with some of her decisions when it came to the placement of children. So, Georgia packed up and moved to Memphis, Tennessee with June. By this time, Anne and Georgia had grown even closer, eventually forming a romantic relationship. Anne had been a single mother to her baby son Jack and was excited to join Georgia in Memphis. Because of the stigma around unmarried mothers at the time, Anne decided it would be easier to give people the impression that she was widowed. Also at the time, it wasn't unusual for two single women to be living together. After all, it made a lot of financial sense. This kind of living arrangement even had its own name, known as a Boston marriage. The term also came to apply, retrospectively, to situations where two women were thought to be living in a lesbian relationship. Of course, with same-sex relationships being taboo, Georgia and Anne had to maintain the perception of being nothing more than friends. Undeterred by her unfortunate dismissal in Mississippi, Georgia quickly found another job, becoming the executive secretary of the Tennessee Children's Home Society branch in Shelby County. The society was the oldest child-placing agency in the state and operated orphanages across several counties up until the mid-20th century. The organization even employed agents who conducted field work. Ever ambitious, Georgia had big plans to revolutionize the system. Officials, however, had no idea that someone at the head of the organization was unabashedly engaging in child exploitation. Even worse, it was all for her own financial gain. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Within the state of Tennessee, adoption agencies were only permitted to charge prospective parents for their administrative services, which cost around $7. But with her background in law, Georgia was able to find a legislative loophole, and knew how much money she could make from it. Beginning in 1924, she started offering private adoptions, under-the-table deals with families out of state, mainly in New York and California. This was where the wealthiest lived the ones who could afford her very high fees. As the operation grew, she started outsourcing the legwork to some of her field agents. Every few weeks, they would travel to the east and west coasts, taking several babies with them. Hotel rooms were used to showcase available babies to hopeful couples, like an adoption buffet of sorts. But these private showings were far more expensive than the usual $7 admin fee. Georgia was charging affluent families $700, which was a blatant disregard of Tennessee's law. She soon expanded her baby-selling enterprise, taking on clients from other states like Mississippi, Arkansas, and Missouri. It's not exactly clear where Georgia deposited the proceeds from her highly illegal operation, but it was obvious that she was using the money to fund a very lavish lifestyle. Of course, to avoid the attention of authorities, Georgia kept her illicit side hustle a complete secret from almost everyone. Neither the board of the Children's Society or the IRS had any idea about her lucrative adoption racket. In 1928 alone, it's estimated that Georgia arranged the private sale of over 200 children. It didn't take long for Georgia Tan to become the go-to person for the rich and famous who wanted to adopt children of their own. She socialized with politicians and charmed more than one prominent figure in the legal profession, including Shelby County family court judge Camille Kelly. With Judge Kelly now a trusted friend, the court became a valuable resource in facilitating the baby-selling racket. The judge was suspected of signing orders that removed children from women who were divorced, placing the new state wards into Georgia's care. The judge then effectively rubber-stamped the subsequent adoptions, while completely sidestepping Tennessee law. There was never any evidence that Judge Kelly was ever paid by Georgia, but there's no question her actions were unethical and entirely inappropriate. This beneficial connection enabled adoptions for such Hollywood royalty as Joan Crawford, who adopted her twins through the Children's Home Society. Another prominent figure who used the agency while Georgia was running things was the governor of New York. At the time, he had just brought into law the sealing of all original birth certificates for adoptees after 1935. The happy couples with their adopted children were unfortunately unaware exactly how their new kids had been acquired by the society in the first place. Also, the dreadful conditions under which the children had been living while in Georgia's care were never disclosed. It didn't take long before business was booming. So much so, the demand for new children was exceeding supply. 
In order to satisfy the number of requests from wealthy families, Georgia had to rethink her strategy. No longer could she afford to simply wait for children to enter the adoption system. She would have to find them herself. So Georgia Tan went from helping children to becoming a child predator. Targeting single mothers, she used her knowledge of the law, powers of persuasion, and deceptively grandmotherly charm to manipulate vulnerable women into giving up their children for adoption. According to archives at the Tennessee State Library, women who gave birth while committed to psychiatric institutions were fair game as well. Using her child welfare network to take children born to state wards, Georgia continued going to great lengths to source more inventory. As word spread that she could make adoptions happen quickly for those who were willing to pay, she eventually turned to child abduction. Families who had no intention of permanently surrendering their children soon found their kids had disappeared. Parents who temporarily placed their children in foster care were left devastated, and with no paper trail indicating where they were, it was impossible to find their missing children. Even parents who had dropped their kids off at daycare could return to find out that they had been taken by authorities from child services. And that would be it. No further explanation given. Georgia's incredibly disturbing operation was expanding and by now had managed to get agents inside several hospital maternity wards. She took full advantage, convincing naive and emotional new mothers their babies were in need of specialized medical attention. Not long afterwards, when the confusion and the chaos lifted and the new mothers wanted to see their supposedly unwell newborns, they were told by staff from the Children's Home Society that their babies had died. The newborns were alive and well, of course, but had since been adopted out to other families. The process was swift and matter-of-fact. To Georgia, this was a business, and the product was other people's children. But the businesswoman's long-term strategy was not perfect. When it came to covering her tracks, for example, she took few steps to hide the source of her inflated bank account. This, among other loose ends, was about to become a setback for the lucrative and highly legal business. In 1941, the Tennessee Children's Home Society was stripped of its endorsement by the Child Welfare League of America. That's because they discovered Georgia had been destroying case files, and not just one or two. Trying to cover up for the complete lack of background checks conducted on adoptive families under her watch, she tried destroying the paperwork for all adoptions arranged by the society. Things got even worse when it was discovered that Georgia had fabricated the background information of the children themselves. It was clear she did this to make them more attractive prospects for her unsuspecting, high-paying clients. Her response to the Child Welfare League's accusations? She claimed they had no right to access information on specific adoptions under state privacy laws. Also, she had no answers to explain how she managed to place so many children when the society clearly lacked the resources. There were no accommodations to even house the high number of children documented in her files. In reality, the children had been kept under questionable standards in foster care and nursing homes. Despite the allegations, 
Georgia wasn't too worried about her professional record being tarnished. Just two years later, things were starting to turn around. A large estate was generously donated for the purpose of housing children until they were adopted. Now, instead of keeping children at various temporary shelters, most could be under one roof. Georgia hired unqualified staff to run what essentially became a house of horrors. Mistreatment, misery, and death were common. The children were often left heavily sedated to make their behavior easier to manage. Those unfortunate few who ended up being long-term residents usually suffered a slow, painful death from malnutrition. As far as anyone on the outside knew, Georgia was an absolute saint, doing everything she could to help the children in her care. But behind closed doors, she was nothing short of a monster. Essential medical care and medication which could have easily treated common conditions were intentionally withheld, leading to many children dying. No one really knows how many kids died from neglect and abuse under Georgia's watch. Some were buried in a Memphis cemetery, where she had bought a small plot back in 1923. No headstones or markers of any kind were ever placed. The only identifying information Georgia had recorded was a list of the children's first names. The location of the hundreds of other deceased children remains a mystery to this day. It was no coincidence that during her tenure with the Tennessee Society, the infant mortality rate in Shelby County skyrocketed to one of the highest in the U.S. Sadly, no one ever connected the dots. In the meantime, Georgia drew on her extensive knowledge of adoption law when it came to her ongoing relationship with her partner, Ann Atwood. In August 1943, Georgia officially adopted Ann, allowing Ann to inherit Georgia's assets upon her death, a common practice for same-sex couples back then. By 1950, though, things started to fall apart. After years of operating her black market business, authorities were finally alerted that something was not right. Reports began trickling in about a nice old lady believed to be selling children, that she was charging excessive adoption fees and pocketing the difference. The allegations were taken seriously. The governor of Tennessee commenced a high-profile investigation of the society's management and operational practices. When word got out, the public was outraged and appalled. They were even more disgusted when it was discovered that Georgia had made as much as a million dollars over the years. Georgia managed to evade criminal prosecution, but only because she died in September 1950. Within days of her death, the governor filed charges against the Children's Home Society. In the wake of the investigation, Judge Kelly retired from the bench, managing as well to avoid criminal charges before passing away just five years later. She may have dodged legal consequences, but the Tennessee Department of Public Welfare was scathing in its assessment of her role in the operation. That same year, the Tennessee Children's Home Society was shut down. Unlike the way Hollywood usually depicts the perfect ending to adoption, 
This unfortunately was not the reality for the thousands of children and families affected. Georgia Tan is suspected of taking upwards of 5,000 children throughout her career, with at least 500 of them dying from neglect and abuse while in her care. After her death, no further investigations were conducted in New York or California, where Georgia made a substantial amount of her money. Sadly, no children were ever returned to their birth homes, even after the horrible truth was revealed. In 1951, an overhaul began of Tennessee adoption laws. Ironically, the now commonplace practice of issuing amended birth certificates in U.S. adoptions was originally a self-serving scam implemented by Georgia. Where these days it's the way many states finalize the adoption process, using modified birth certificates was widely used by Georgia to avoid detection. Adoption laws in Tennessee continued to be revised in the decades that followed. By 1979, legislation was in place to help locate siblings from families split up by Georgia's actions. It finally became easier for adoptees to access their records. If there's anything at all good to come out of this tragic story, it's worth pointing out there are no such concerns about the Tennessee Children's Home of today. The organization has no affiliation with its predecessor, or the atrocities committed by a greedy and depraved opportunist many people mistook as just a nice old lady.
Production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hope of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.